1: Welcome to the Up for Discussion podcast, the only show on the internet where we talk about the things we talk about in the order we talk about them. I'm Tom Zolotnay. Hi, my name is Tim Blay. We've got a special guest with us this week, the author of Misfit Faith, uh, host, co-host, I should say, of the Drunk Ex-Pastors podcast. It is Jason Stellman Jason Stellman welcome. Hey,
2: what's up, guys? Thanks for having me. Yeah, yeah. thanks for coming. Yeah. So, my uh, pleasure, yeah.
0: how's how's your day going, Jason?
2: Good. Um, just fed my kids some lunch. Um, it's raining here in Seattle as always. And so I'm staring out my window at, uh, drizzle. Um, but yeah, it's, it's good day though. Otherwise.
1: Yeah. So you're, you're Seattle based usually.
2: Yeah. I come from uh, Southern California and moved up to the Northwest in 04. So I've been up here for about 12 and a half years or so. Um, and you know, I miss home when I'm down there, but when I'm up here, it's beautiful and I love it.
1: Yeah, that's fair. I used to be a a West Coast guy. I grew up in Vancouver, been out in Montreal since uh, 99, and it's a similar feeling where I'm like, yeah, I miss Uh the weather, and otherwise I like it here.
0: Yeah. Yeah. Is is there actually like a a large difference you find between Seattle and, say, Southern California? Like, those are all just a hazy blob in my mind, because, you know, (laughs) Canadian East Coast...
2: What well, the West Coast of the US is the center of the universe. I don't know how you don't know this. <laughs> um, yeah, it's a massive difference. I mean, where I come from um, is all pretty much always 75 degrees and sunny, doesn't matter when it is in the year. And then up in the Seattle area, it's, you know, we get like 250, 300 days of rain every year. So it's a big difference.
0: Mm, yeah. Lovely. How about culture wise? Is, is there a large cultural shift?
2: Um, well, the Seattle area is very uh, culturally liberal, kind of leftist. Mm-hmm. Um, but then you get outside of the, I mean, if you get to the eastern part of the state in Washington, um, like literally an hour east of where I am, uh, it's like Trump country, you know? <laughs> so it's very different. Um, And, like, down in Southern California, too, I mean, like, it's obviously a blue state, um, but depending on how rural an area you're in, the culture's going to be different.
1: Yeah, that makes sense. Yeah, I mean, a lot of people
0: say that the political divides are more country-city than they are actually state-by-state, for sure.
2: That's for sure true, yeah. Yeah.
0: So, uh, this book of yours, Misfit Faith... Um, I've read, I've, I haven't read all of it. I think, Tom, Tom you read the whole thing, right? I read
1: the whole thing in a day and a half because that's how I read books. And it's a, it's nice. a nice, short little book that's very compact. It's true. Um, it would have taken me a lot longer if it was a longer book. I, I've been <laughs> yeah. working through this one, uh, this one Washington
2: biography for like a year now, and I'm like not even halfway done. <laughs> but your book, I was like, yeah, this if, is
1: tight. I can do this in a day. Let's do it.
2: Yeah, if it took you a year to not even get halfway through my book, I'd think that there's something wrong. Yeah, And <laughs> probably with me and my writing style.
1: Or that we're really,
0: really intense about analyzing your deep philosophical <laughs> oh,
2: yeah. concepts. I think that, that would or be... Or that, or maybe that. Maybe
0: it would, you know, how... Uh, who was it? Uh, there, you know, there are people who take tiny little philosophical pages that some philosopher wrote and they'll write like a thousand pages on it. So, philosophy yeah. students. Mm-hmm. <laughs> um, yeah.
1: yeah, this is... I, so, I have read like a fair number of sort of the like... Christian guy decides to write a book about their thoughts on faith kind of books. Mm-hmm. And mm-hmm. like, I think this is one of my favorite ones. I, I enjoyed a lot of the conclusions you got to about things. I also just enjoyed your writing style, the, uh, all the pop culture references and the sort of irreverence. I, <laughs> I, I enjoyed it. I appreciate <laughs> it. <laughs>
2: yeah. Well, I'm glad to hear that. Um, I, I mean, I'm a consumer of popular culture and I, you know, I wrote the way I talk and the way I think. And so, you know, whenever some, you know, big Lebowski reference uh, suggests itself to me, I just have to run with it.
0: Totally. <laughs> <laughs> I did notice several of those both in the book and in your podcast. You, uh, you, uh, you, uh, yeah. That, yeah. That movie runs close to your heart, I think. <laughs> so with, yeah, why, why a book? Why did you decide like, you know, I have thoughts that I don't think have, you know, are on a shelf yet, and I want to put them there? Like what was, what, where did that come from?
2: Well, it's funny because the book that you guys have in front of you is uh, a very different version of it than the one I initially wrote. Um, I used to be a pastor of a Presbyterian church, and uh, in 2012, I stepped down from my ministry to um, be received into the Catholic Church, and that was the result of like a four-year intense struggle for me. Mm. And, um, I was approached by, um, my editor over at random house because I had written a piece defending my, you know, conversion, um, to Catholicism. I wrote something for a website and he saw it and he contacted me and asked if I wanted to, um, put together a proposal for a book. And I said, of course. Um, but then the version of the book I wrote, uh, I ended up scrapping it because when I was done with it, I just looked at it and really, really hated it. Um, you know, because I, I I used to be very, and I talk about this in the book. I, I used to be really kind of polemical, argumentative. I used to just have real kind of bloodlust, you know, for for <laughs> debates and all this. And yeah. I so the version of it I wrote was reflecting that side of me. Um, but as the course of that time went on, I I just changed. You know, I stopped really um, being that way, really caring about convincing anybody of anything or caring if anybody listens or agrees with me or not. And so I asked him, you know, when I was done, like, I hate this thing. Can I just redo this? Or what should we do? <laughs> wow. And he said, well, if you want to redo it, you can redo it. Um, and, you know, I said, yeah, I, I do because I want to write something that I'm proud of that actually reflects my own heart mm. uh, more faithfully than this. And um, they were very cool about it. And so that is kind of how Misfit Faith came about. Hmm.
1: Yeah, and and I think you're lucky that uh, that they were willing to let you rewrite it, right? Cuz that that does, that's not a story you hear that often where the writer says, "Hey, I want to completely change this book. You guys cool with this?"
2: <laughs> yeah, well, I know. It's um it, I was and I acknowledged them in the acknowledgments at the end like, you know, it, Thank you for having patience with my uh, spiritual schizophrenia here, because um, if you hadn't been elastic with deadlines and expectations, then I never would have seen the light of day.
0: Mm-hmm. So that's sort of the sort of two transformations you've had then sort of one after the other. So like what, what do you what do you think was the more fundamental one, the one where you went from Protestant to Catholic or the one where you went from like argumentative to um, whatever it is you are now?
2: Um, a misfit. How's that? <laughs>
0: um,
2: that's a really good question. I think, like, existentially, it's the second one. You know, it was really... Because the, the first one was mainly going from Protestant to Catholic was very much about ideas, very much about ways of reading texts like Scripture or the early Church Fathers and all of that. Um, and I was a very academic person at the time, and so I, I wrestled through that on an academic level. Um, there were existential components too, because I was a pastor. So if I jump ship, I'm giving up my job, I'm giving up my livelihood and all that. Um, but what, what I wasn't expecting was once I became Catholic, that I wasn't just going to be another Catholic version of my old Protestant self. You know, I, I expected to be that. And that's why I wrote the book in the way I did initially. And I was kind of you know putting myself on the conference speaker circuit and all this um but then once i started realizing that that's not what i wanted and that's not really who i am it you know it took me a a while to really wrap my own heart and mind around this new kind of um more mellow version of myself you know <laughs> um I, you know it's you know, the, the or first version of the book was like very undoed, you know, if I could quote Big Lebowski again. <laughs> um, it, it wasn't, you know, it, it doesn't reflect who I am now at all. And and it's I'll tell you what, it's Um, it, it's much more pleasant to, to kind of be where I'm at now, not feeling like I'm constantly threatened by some idea I don't understand or don't agree with, mm. not feeling like I have to go hunt out heretics and, and argue with them on the interwebs and all this like. I, I feel like I've just left all that behind and it's good riddance as far as I'm concerned.
1: Right. There's a, there's a piece that comes with that.
2: Totally. Absolutely. Hmm.
1: So I'm, I'm curious. Uh, th- so I, just for some background, I'm Anglican, Tim's Catholic. Um, cool. I think we're both a little bit more, we're not like the strictest adhering to either of those things. I think that's fair to <laughs> yeah. say. That's probably fair. Yeah. Um, I'm definitely politically a lot more liberal leaning than my denomination. And <laughs> <laughs> um, but I, I think my, my one question for you, I guess, uh, is why, what led you to Catholicism? Uh, like what, what was it that made you choose that as where you ended up?
2: Yeah. Well, I, I say, I think in the intro that, um, there's always been, even before, even in my kind of broad evangelical days in my early mid twenties, um, I always had a a soft spot for it, for Catholicism, you know? Um, I talk about how there was a day back when I and two of my friends were um, on our way to Africa to be missionaries with our old church, and we had a, a layover for an entire day in Brussels, and we stopped into St. Michael's Cathedral there in, in downtown Brussels, and like, you know, I'd never really, I, I, I didn't grow up, you know, really in, in a church setting, and certainly not a Catholic one, and so it was really my first, you know foray into catholic stuff you know and it really had an impact on me even as i was 18 years old at the time and it had had an impact on me that i never forgot just the aesthetics of it and the sense of like substance and texture and memory and all of this that that sort of is you know um in the air in a place like that Mm. um but that was about all that 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 did, you know, until um, 2008 is when I w- and at that time I was a pretty hardcore Presbyterian, you know, who thought that the Catholic, you know, gospel is heresy and, and all of that. Um, but I was confronted with some arguments about the issue of like scripture and the church and how they relate to one another. Uh, calling into question the Protestant idea of Sola Scriptura, that only the Bible is our um, source of supernatural revelation from God. And it kind of got in my, it was like a stone in my shoe. It was like, ugh, like I, the the article was making a lot of sense and I didn't know how to answer it. And at the time, obviously I was the kind of guy who couldn't abide loose ends, you know, in my, <laughs> right. in my worldview. So I just had to dig and dig and dig and read and study and Um, then once I thought that there was a decent enough case made for that, for the Catholic understanding of the role of the church and scripture, you know, for the believer's uh, life, that's when I started looking into the gospel stuff, you know, the stuff about what must I do to be saved. And, you know, how do the Catholics answer this? Because it sounds like so ridiculous from what I know, but most of what I knew was just kind of caricature. You know, you read what people on your team tell you about the people over there and what (laughs) they say. But I actually, I'm going to read them. I'm going to read what they say about this from their own mouths. That's a
0: dangerous proposition.
2: (laughs) Yeah, totally. Yeah, it's much easier to just believe the the, the hype, the rhetoric, and the propaganda Mm -hmm. rather than actually letting your enemy speak for himself. And Mm -hmm. when I did that, that's kind of when I thought, well, you know, this – this makes a whole lot more sense out of my new Testament than the rubric under which I'm operating now. And by the time I, I concluded that, excuse me, it had been like a four year process. Right. And that, at that point it was like, well, I need to just pull the trigger on this or I'm just not going to respect myself.
1: <laughs> yeah, wow. that's fair. I mean, you wrestle with something for long enough. It kind of gets to the point where you're like, all right, yeah, this is clearly yeah. where I'm
2: at. Yeah, I know. And I, I think, you know, I didn't have a lot of respect for people um, who were one thing, but deep down were something else. Mm. You know, and there were, there were people in my denomination at the time who were, you know, had very Catholic ideas, and they would write books and preach and lecture about these things. And in my mind, they were undermining our doctrinal standards by doing that. And I didn't, I, I didn't really respect that, <clears throat> and I didn't want to be that guy. And so once I knew that I was outside of the pale, you know, of of Presbyterian orthodoxy or whatever, then it was like, well, I'm not going to be that guy who just keeps doing the, my job for the paycheck. But deep down, I'm just undermining it by what I really think. Yeah. Um, and so I thought, I'm not going to, I don't want to do that. I, I'll just pull the trigger and, and roll the dice and see what happens, you know.
0: Yeah, that makes sense. Yeah. Okay, so I I want to get a little bit into your idea maybe of like, what religion is, and what religion is for, um, because I think like there, there's a lot of different positions on this, right? There's kind of there's the idea that you know the sort of non non-overlapping magisteria idea that like religion tells you how to live, but it's not supposed to tell you like literal facts about the world, or there's mm-hmm. there's the idea that maybe religion is something to give your life purpose, but then you have to find the one that corresponds sort of with your already existing ideas of what's purposeful, and you you latch onto that. Um mm-hmm. so what what do you think in t- in terms of like like religion actually giving you a guide for how to live and for what things are actually true what role does it actually have
2: Yeah that's a great question um and the closest i get to touching on it i think is in the last chapter about fairy tales called uh too good to be false and, actually, and there I, actually I, skipped
0: I to the end and read that chapter because it looked interesting. So that's great. <laughs> I
2: thought, I yeah, you know, I I think that might be my favorite chapter. And my editor, when I submitted the thing, told me, "Oh man, that last chapter is the best one in the whole book." And I thought, "Well, crap, you know, like maybe we should make it the first chapter because I don't want people to put the book down without getting to the good stuff."
0: Well, maybe you should write another book now.
2: <laughs> well, I'm yeah, I I I'm working <laughs> on it. Um, I got ideas, believe me. Right. Um, but you know, I you know, I kind of have backed off my more kind of fundamentalist way of, of understanding that, you know, issue that you brought up, you know, I would have said years ago that, um, you know, Christianity simply corresponds to the way the world actually is full stop. And Presbyterian theology, um, is the best representation of the teaching of the Bible. Um, and, Insofar as people around the world are out of accord with what I think, to that degree, they're just wrong. Hmm. And, you know, that was kind of like, you know, the way I looked at the world, it was very black and white. Right. Whereas now, you know, I I think that um, man has a sense of the divine, you know, that there's something about um, us as humans that we feel as though we're a part of some bigger saga or tale, uh, and that regardless of what we may say on paper or believe academically, um, I think that many of us are very much mystical supernaturalists at the end of the day. You know, we believe that there's something out there beyond just the physical realm, you know, and I think um, to me, obviously, Christianity and Catholicism is what is re- what resonates the most with me and makes the most sense for me. However... You know I and I think I say it in the book, you know it's the height of hubris to think that because I happen to have won the lottery and been born where I was born so, so that I'm not a Muslim or a Hindu, but i'm a I'm a Christian that therefore you know my way of looking at at God or s- thinking about spiritual things is the only valid way because obviously I think you know if God is universal um then he's manifesting himself to everybody, and I think that we really lose something if we are in principle opposed to even considering or entertaining the ideas or thoughts about him that someone might have because they come from some country where I just don't know the language and, and it's weird and foreign and what do you know about it? Um, you know to me um, there, there's a universality to to religion, and i don't necessarily expect it to tell me scientific facts about the world i I don't expect um the let's say the historical narrative of the old testament to sort of um fall in line with with kind of post enlightenment modern expectations of the way histories works and the way historiography works um i don't really think that way um Hmm. i don't think that the writers of scripture necessarily understood their project when they would write let's say about the Flood episode, or the Canaanite genocide, or the creation narrative, or whatever it is, right. you know, I don't think that they were necessarily ri- writing history the way we think of writing history in our in our you know um, very modern context.
0: Yeah, right. We have a very like objectivist scientific approach to writing. To, to like storytelling and history now that really only
2: came up in the past few hundred years. Yeah. Because we have a printing press and we have libraries and you can just like read, if you want to write a biography of Washington, you can do a bunch <laughs> of research where whoever wrote the Genesis narrative never traveled like more than uh 30 yards from the m- place he was born. You know? Right. So it's like, you, it's like, are we, is it? Um, and the irony here is that if, you know, a fundamentalist will say, well, you're not taking scripture seriously if you're not taking these, these stories absolutely literally. But to me, it's like no. I think I'm taking scripture more seriously by considering the fact that you know this. A lot of this was written by like Bronze Age people, Mm -hmm. Um, and to to really try to understand, you know, how did origin myths function in the ancient Near East? What what was the function of something like the Genesis record or the Gilgamesh epic or whatever it might be? Um, It's taking scripture more seriously, I think, to be willing to um, you know to to let it play by its own rules rather than expecting it to play by mine.
1: Right. Yeah. And I think that there's like a, a humility that is present in that as well that like, yeah, I mean, I'd like to commend you for that because I think it's really easy to get into a space where you think like, you know, everything that I believe is exactly right and everything everyone else (laughs) believes is wrong. But I think that if you've got a humility to you about your beliefs, then it allows for a sort of ecumenism that's like necessary to function as a member of a global society.
2: Well, yeah, especially since, um, and you know who's been really helpful uh, along these lines for me is Peter Ends. Um, I don't know if you're familiar with Peter Enns, but he's Old Testament prof. He used to be at Westminster Seminary in Philadelphia, but now he's uh, somewhere else, I forget where. But um, he's written extensively on this stuff. You know, talking about, um, you know, the world. The world is just smaller now, um, and especially since the 19th century and all the archaeological um, discoveries that they've made since since that discipline began to exist, um, it really just almost demands either a humility on our part, like you said, or uh, we just bury our head in the sand and say, "Earth is six thousand years old, the Hebrews, uh, you know, everything that their scripture says is exactly what happened, full stop." And I'm not going to consider anything to the contrary. And but I say I yeah it's too tiring to live that way. You know? <laughs>
0: <laughs> yeah, absolutely. One th- one thing that I I see happening, which I think like some, I think some people sort of go halfway on that, and I think you're actually not going halfway. So I I want to see if you agree with this. Um, a lot of people will will like agree with you that the Bible is not a history book or it's not a science textbook, um, but then. As soon as you get into, if you want the scientific facts about heaven or the like, the like the absolute scientific facts about who gets saved and who doesn't, then <laughs> then like you become very hard line. And I think the way that th- the reason why people can still become very hard line is that those aren't the sorts of things that you can go out into the world and necessarily disprove, right? So you can't, I, you can't really do an experiment or dig up a bone that tells you that actually the way of life is broad and many are those who are going to get into it um right but you seem you seem to be a lot more comfortable than a lot of people with sort of challenging that narrative that even even the the things that are about sort of heavenly spiritual matters are to be understood exactly as written
2: well yeah you know um I have a line in there because I said earlier, you know, I wasn't, I I used to be very uncomfortable with loose ends in my thinking. Um, They had to be all tied up, nice and tidy. And I have a line in the book someplace where I I say something and I, and then I say, now, how, how does this comport with, you know, the testimony of scripture? And I say, I don't know. And (laughs) thankfully it's not my job to know anymore. I'm not a professional theologian or Bible scholar anymore. And so I can just say, yeah, like that story where uh Elijah uh, or Elisha rather gets made fun of by those boys before being bald and so he cursed them and God sent two bears to maul 42 of them. Right. Yeah, I don't think that happened. You know, um if <laughs> it did happen, I don't, think, stories, I don't think I don't think God did it. <laughs> yeah, I don't think God did it if it happened. I think it was just a coincidence. Mm-hmm. Um but, you know, it just, I don't, and, and so what do you, well, what's your hermeneutic for understanding second Kings? It's like, I don't know. I, I don't know, man. I don't know. <laughs> I just know what I, what I think. And, um, I'm okay with just not knowing stuff, which is for me, a huge growth, you know, like it's massive amount of growth for me to like be okay with not knowing <laughs> right. stuff, um, you know, but I am. And so if there, if there's something in scripture that seems to, um, run, you know, run counter to you know, the basic idea that I outlined in the first chapter about God as a father, then I'm just going to fall back on God as a father. And, you know, if God is said to treat someone in a way that is uh, cruel and in a way that I would never treat my own earthly children, then I'm just going to not think he did that. (laughs) You know, like, sorry. I I, I wouldn't do that to my kid. I wouldn't, like, waterboard my child for uh, all eternity because he failed to, like, uh, clean his room right. And so I just don't think God's going to do that to people. So, and I I feel like almost like you need if you disagree with me, then you need need, the burden of proof is on you. You know, I don't think (laughs) what I'm saying is all that um, striking unless you're a fundamentalist with a very literal understanding of you know how to read the Bible,
1: right?
0: Right, because a fundamentalist would say, "Well, if you don't, if you disagree with how God did something, that's because your, you know, your conscience is malformed, or you don't really understand what a father is actually supposed to be like, or you don't understand actually what love is, or you can't see the the grander plan." Right?
2: Yeah, yeah. They all it all, always comes back to the uh, well. Well, God's ways are are higher than our ways. Yeah, you know, and mm-hmm. my, and I talk about it in the book. My response is like, "Yeah, but." Higher than the way you're using it, God's ways are higher than our ways. Is is basically saying um, God is just more of an asshole than us, <laughs> and you know, and it's like I, yeah, I think if if God is love, then God's ways being higher than our ways means His ways are more loving than than our ways are. Totally. Um, and so you can't say, well, you know, for us, yes, I would never waterboard my son. But God's ways are higher. And so he would totally waterboard people for a trillion <laughs> years. And he's just warming up. Right. And he's like, no, no, um, I, I I, just don't see it. I'm sorry.
1: <laughs> yeah, well, and, and I think like, you know, looking at those kinds of passages, like it really just, for me, it it seems like the way that people back then told stories, right? It's, you know, they want to get the point across that you should obey your parents. So they tell a story about, you know, God smiting some people and... They're like, see, don't disobey your parents or, you know, bad shit will happen. But it's like, no, God didn't actually do those things. That's crazy. It's very, it's very similar to like you see that in
0: fairy tales, right? Where, you know, some people did a minorly selfish thing and in response, birds come and pluck out their eyes. It's like, huh, that was a little extreme nature. But if,
1: if yeah, you're right. If it's making a point. Yeah. Those yeah, absolutely. Birds, those birds don't know that that was selfish. Those birds just see some eyes they want to eat. <laughs> <laughs>
2: yeah, because that's what birds eat. They just eat
1: eyes.
0: Well, yeah. You ever seen a bird? I'm a scientist. I know these things. <laughs> yeah. Okay.
1: <laughs> I know a thing or two about birds. <laughs> <laughs> hmm. So I've I've got a question, and Tim and I have talked about this a little bit um, just between us, but never actually on uh, on our show. And I thought it might be interesting to have you weigh in. Um, so my my only real issue with the Catholic church, like there's, there's a, there's myriad things that as a person who kind of grew up Protestant, I've been told to have issues with, but I don't care about those. My real issue, the only one that actually stands for me is that as an Anglican, I'm not allowed to take communion at a Catholic church. What, like, what do you think about that? How do you, as a person who is, <coughs> you know, kind of, a misfit. would you, would you call yourself ecumenical? You feel ecumenical <laughs> to me. Yeah,
2: for sure. I would.
1: So how do you hold that intention then?
2: Well, I mean, that's just one, you know, one of a million issues where, you know, I, uh, you know, I look at, let's say some aspect of Catholic thought or doctrine that's actually dogma, you know, that's, you know, one of those, you know, big deal, uh, ideas. (laughs) And, you know, there, it's like, I, I, there's things I don't agree with, you know, um, and, again, like I said earlier about letting the ambiguity lie, um, yeah, I, I mean, I think I would, I would love it if, the, if communion were open. Um, and there are a lot of, lot of Catholics who can't take the Eucharist either because they, um, maybe they got divorced and they got remarried um, right. and, and without doing it right, or maybe they masturbated yesterday, or, <laughs> yeah. or maybe, they ate, maybe they ate a handful of Cheerios in the car, right before they got out to go to church that day, and you're not supposed to eat for, like, an hour before the Eucharist. There's, I mean, it's, to me, it's like, like, I suppose I understand the need for, you know, dogma and precision. However, it, it, it you know, it's, to me, it's not where I live and breathe. Mm. Um, you know, I, I actually think Pope Francis, if you, like, you um, you know, you ever seen the movie The Purge where there's like a 24-hour period <laughs> where there's like uh, no laws for 24 hours? Yeah. Like if you gave Pope Francis like 24 hours of like, okay, you got 24 hours to like rewrite anything you want about Catholic dogma. I think he would have a field day with <laughs> a lot of these things. Um, he doesn't have the power to do that, unfortunately. But um, hmm. I think I think that he um, recognizes the tension between how he looks at the world and the, and the church that he— has to pastor namely the catholic church and you can tell when he when he talks when he when he addresses anything from you know wage slavery to um homosexuality to divorce i mean the guy you know he's got a huge heart and i think he's working within a system doing his best to um kind of blunt some of the sharpness of of the church's voice and I figure ah, if the pope if the pope can uh, you know deal with the the this tension, then I can deal with it too. <laughs> um, if it were my, I mean, there there are Catholic churches though that that they would let you take communion. I mean, mm-hmm. there are Catholic churches that they would say, "Look, hey, are, do you are you like a Christian? Yeah, then come on. You know, who cares? Don't worry about the the." Um, details, don't worry about the fine print, just come on up and and, and we'll, we'll serve you. Right. And technically they're breaking the rules, but it's like, uh, you know, Jesus broke the rules. Too, so
1: <laughs> Yeah, well, that's it. And that, that's kind of what I always come back to with that is like, you know, Jesus instituted communion and was not Catholic, right? Or was not Roman right. Catholic. So mm-hmm. it, it feels like a weird issue to stand on. Okay, I, I like that answer, though. I think that makes sense to me. Y- yeah, it's- for me,
2: a lot of it too, is just like I said earlier about the cathedral in in brussels uh that i was in um you know i you know it would have been easier for me to be eastern orthodox you know eastern orthodoxy (laughs) they don't have a pope they don't have they don't have ecumenical councils anymore they don't have dogmas really that they can you know really do pronounce or whatever um it would be easier to be that it would be easier to be anglican too um but I'm just such a Westerner, and I like I, I like stained glass and wrought iron and incense, you know. So I'm Catholic, even though I picked like the worst thing to be if I'm gonna be like this um, hippie guy who's running around talking about hey, it's all good, just love each other. I picked like the super rules based religion to be a part of, but it's like it's big enough. It, it's big enough to fit me, you know. It, it, I, I can fit in there. Um, and there, you know, as long as I can, as long as I can, you know, think and feel and discover stuff, then I'm good. Even if I may not be on the same exact page on every point with my church. Yeah,
1: totally. Mm. It, it mm. keeps things interesting too, right? Having a little yeah. bit of tension there. Like I. Yeah, you know, absolutely. There's there's plenty that the Anglican Church is about that I'm kind of like. Eh. Uh, At best, ambiguous on and sometimes just outright disagree with. But, you know, you you guys have a queen as the head of your church. That's weird. We have a queen (laughs) as the head of our country. It it just made sense to me. (laughs) (laughs) I mean, I, you know, I grew up in an atheist home and my first church experience was at like a vaguely Protestant uh, day camp in the summer run by a bunch of Anglicans who were only nominally Anglican. So Mm. I needed to find something that made sense.
2: Yeah. Yeah.
0: I have a, a a Catholic friend who has a a parlor game he likes to play which is called um choose your favorite heresy. Um, <laughs> and the idea, I mean it's a very simple idea. You just go around and you explain why you would want like like if you if you had to be a heretic like from a Catholic <laughs> perspective, if you had to choose one heresy to like stand on and make it your heresy. What would it be? And his is actually um sort of the the notion of like universal salvation. That's the one that he thinks, you know. I, I would love that to be true. That would be fantastic.
2: Yeah, yeah, that's a good answer. That, well, he, you know, uh, do you know Father Robert Barron? Yeah, he—I think he's a bishop down in L.A. now. He used to be out in somewhere in the Midwest, but um, you know, he he follows—is um, it—is it, is it uh, Baltazar? The whole thing about hopeful universalism—you know, this idea that we can't say for sure that universalism is true because we can't know who goes to heaven, who goes to hell, but I can hold out a very, very strong and rational hope that everyone will be saved, um, you know. And so even a bishop can say that kind of thing, <laughs> um, you know. So, yeah, I mean, I, and I even go I go farther than that in the book.
0: Maybe you could explain.
2: Well, we kind of got into it a little bit earlier, talking about God as Father, um, but I have a hard time wrapping my head around the idea that um god despite his being able to snap his fingers and and save somebody is n- nonetheless going to potentially decide not to and condemn billions and billions of people if you take you know um the whole history of the world into account billions and billions of people to to eternal conscious torment when he could have saved them easily right it's one thing it's one thing if like um, you know, two people are drowning and you can only, you can only save one, you know? um, But it, it's like if you're God, then you can just, you know, save everybody. It's just <laughs> some, some pure act of the will, you know, it's not that hard.
0: Right, a lot, of, a lot of apologetics like sort of traps God in these sort of tricky logical problems where you're like, really, God put himself in that strange <laughs> like bind in a corner? Seems yeah, like I even talk about in the book
2: about yeah I talk about how um this idea well God is you know God is bound by his nature God is holy he doesn't he doesn't have any choice other than to demand absolute holiness from us because his nature is such that it it just is a consequence of his own you know exalted um holiness, and you know I kind of say, hold on like this idea that God is bound by something outside of himself, namely this this strict, you know, legalism is sort of stupid. Um, and it's, it's putting God, it, it's painting God as, as primarily a judge and a lawgiver. Mm-hmm. And, you know, I talked about how that was kind of my paradigm before for understanding him was, you know, God made us and gave us his law and man broke his law and rebelled and rendered himself susceptible to, you know, um, God's vindictive uh, retributive wrath um, and he had no other choice but to um, beat the shit out of his own son, so that uh, he, he could get it off his chest, you know, and and uh, save us. <laughs> and to me, it's just like ah, I just you know that that I think there are all kinds of problems with that those ideas. The biggest of which is that it's it's setting aside God's fatherhood and treating him as though being a judge is what he really is at the end of the day, or a lawgiver rather than a father.
0: Yeah, you want to be careful though, Jason, because. You just presented the gospel to a bunch of new people and maybe you've damned them to hell by them not accepting it. <laughs>
2: oh, yeah. Yeah. Yeah, if you don't have the right ideas, you're just screwed. Yeah.
0: <laughs> oh man. Do you see religion f- mostly to be about metaphysical things or mostly about um action, about like or or about maybe not even action but in sort of like forming like practical society. Things. Yeah. Like like suppose that catholicism and christianity are all wrong right like in in well, the factual are. sense
1: it's the orthodox church that has everything right yeah definitely it's the, <laughs> uh,
0: the the mormons have got it um but suppose like suppose that like there is no metaphysics other than natural stuff do you d- does that profoundly affect you or do you see this mostly as a better way to live
2: well i don't see it as a as an either or you know um and that's one thing I've appreciated about, you know, the Catholic lenses that I look through usually is that there are a lot of a lot more both-ands than either-ors. Mm. Um, primarily because it all comes down to Christ and whether Christ was divine or human, and of course the Orthodox answer throughout the ages has been yes, he is both <laughs> divine and human. And he's not either one or the other, and therefore you know it's nice to not <clears throat> be forced to choose between what I think are often false dilemmas. Mm-hmm. Um, But I do, you know. I have been reading a lot of Pete Rollins, um, who is a Northern Irish uh, philosopher who lives down in L.A. now. Um, And you know, yeah, he's great. We had him on our show, Drunk Ex Pastors. We had him on um, a month or so ago. Yeah, yeah, I listened to that one. It was it was so fun. And you know, his whole his whole take on on things is is rather subversive. You know, his his you know following John Caputo, who's one of his you know heroes, and, and becoming one of mine as well. Um, he would say that, you know, um, God is what you call it when love happens. And, um, the point of resurrection is, um, and the point of the tearing of the veil, uh, during the crucifixion that the cry of dereliction on the cross of Jesus, when he says, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And the veil tears open and there's nothing there. You know, there wasn't anything in there. You know, there wasn't, uh, a little man behind the curtain. There wasn't some <laughs> li- like uh, you know vapor that came out and like melted everybody's faces off, like in uh, Raiders of the Lost Ark. <laughs> um, and the point that he draws from that is that um, you know the sacred is no longer some object that um, we need to get in order to be whole. You know, for Adam and Eve, it was the, it was the fruit off the tree. It was the sacred object that they wanted that they felt would make them whole. For many Christians today, it's you know, the the gospel message is you're you know you're you're correct in in searching for wholeness and completeness, but you're looking for it in the wrong places. You're not going to find it in sex and drugs and rock and roll. You're going to find it from Jesus. So you're you know, it's just a different thing out of the vending machine. The vending machine is spitting out you know, <laughs> um, the right thing. You're just pushing the wrong button to get it. And and what what. Um, you know, I talk about a little bit in the book, and what Pete Rollins and others talk about is that, you know, this idea that the sacred is no longer um, an, a, an object, a sacred object that I need to get, but rather it's um, it's found in the midst of this world, the grit and the grime of this world, and in the midst of the ambiguity and the unknowing that we experience in this world. And you know, resurrection is not necessarily about. Um, going up to heaven when you die or whatever um but it 's about living according to a new way uh living according to on a new register altogether, a new plane, um, loving the other, and um that is what we call God when that happens, you know, and if that is true i i won 't mind you know like if even though i 'm more traditional than that, you know but it 's like if, if at the end of the day, what, what this whole religion project was about was getting us to love our neighbor and love our enemy and that's it, then mm. I wouldn't feel jipped off. <laughs> yeah. That, that's you know, I wouldn't feel in the, to quote the big Lebowski again, I wouldn't feel like the good Lord jipped me. <laughs> <laughs> yeah,
1: no, I, I definitely, that resonates with me. Like it was weird. I came to the church in high school. Um, so like, I, I went to a Christian camp when I was a kid because it was the only camp that would let me in for free and my mom was broke. Uh, <laughs> and then I think I was in grade eight when I decided I wanted to actually be Christian and I got baptized and everything. And that led to basically most of me in high school being, you know, the the guy who is about Jesus because I was really on fire for all that stuff at the time, right? Uh, as you do when you come to the church in high, your high school years. Uh, and I was kind of one of the only openly Christian students in my grade at my high school. So people would ask me questions about things all the time. You know, they would bring me all these, you know, questions they thought would like catch me off guard. Like, well, if I'm having sex, am I going to go to hell? Uh, mm-hmm. <laughs> and I basically had to decide pretty early on that my default stance was going to be like, I'm pretty sure God loves you regardless of who you're having sex with. <laughs> mm-hmm. And it, it was fun kind of being the the cool Christian guy who gave answers that people weren't expecting because I was a lot less like dogmatic than the one other Christian kid in the class who had like six (laughs) sisters who were all (laughs) nuns.
2: Oh dude. Yeah. So you're like the liberal one. Yeah,
0: Yeah, exactly.
1: And I had the super long hair
0: and that's the next beard thing too. A specific niche in high school to fill the, the cool
1: Christian. (laughs) I, yeah. And someone had to do it, right?
2: (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. You probably got so many chicks uh, no. <laughs> hey, man, youth group.
1: <laughs> there's no other reason to go to youth group, obviously. It's funny, actually. Uh-huh. I, I remember being in grade nine, I think, and I was telling a friend of mine from a different high school uh, that, you know, there was this girl I was interested in. And he was like, where do you keep finding all these pretty girls? Like, there's no cute girls in my high school. And I was like, all of my cute girls I know are at church. <laughs> <laughs> um, uh...
2: Yeah, Yeah. I used to go to Christian camp every summer with my Baptist church. <laughs> And that was what it was. It was like, you know, um, w- where is the hottest girl from the other church's youth group at? And like, w- you know, let's just, you know, get down to the what the point of being here.
1: Yeah. Mm. Spend one year as an Anglican, next year as a Baptist, because there was a cute Baptist girl at camp that year. Go back to the Anglican church when that doesn't work out.
2: <laughs> you you got to do what you got to do. You yeah. Know?
0: <laughs> but sometimes those do get sort of like caught up <clears throat> in each other because like, I feel like there have been potential instances where I have, you know, at the time thought I was having a spiritual experience where actually I was having a crush. And like, <laughs> those things are like, like when you're, when you're a teenager, you can't necessarily experience the difference. So you go off to camp, you meet a cute girl, and then they tell you that all beautiful feelings that you experience are from Jesus during worship. And it's like, it's, it's very confusing complex of things. I've
1: never gotten a Jesus boner before. <laughs>
2: <laughs> but 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 going back to what we are saying earlier maybe this is not an either or you know maybe if grace perfects nature and if christ is both divine and human then maybe god is found in those very earthly experiences you know um it's you know the puritans were notorious i used to be super into the puritans really and they were notorious yeah for like distinguishing the saving effects of um the spirit versus common ones and so you know, if you're feeling remorse, is it remorse that's the result of the Holy Spirit convicting you, or is it just human remorse? <laughs> like you just feel, and it's like their, their assumption was that nature and grace are at war, and that the Spirit, you know, completely under overturns, or or is it war with um, our natural inclinations? And you know, what if what if that's a false dilemma? What if um, Christ is both divine and human, and, and he's a God man? Um, then maybe, then maybe God is there in the midst of that crush, you know, that you had in that girl, or you're watching that movie or listening to that song. And it's like, why can't that be a spiritual thing?
1: Hmm. Hmm. Yeah. I mean, I definitely have found that like, I feel like my relationship with, with God and with my faith is good when my, like, when I'm actively (laughs) looking for a Christian girlfriend, (laughs) Mm -hmm. not, not. Well, it's weird because I think it it kind of holds me accountable to some extent, right? Because in my mind, Christian girls wouldn't want to date me if I wasn't Christian enough for them. So it kind of like, and you know, I want to be Christian enough for them because I often don't feel like I'm Christian enough for myself. So if I start actively pursuing a Christian girl, there's this shift in my focus where I'm like, I'm sort of focused on her, but I'm actually a lot more focused on realigning myself with the church because I know right. that that's something I have to do first before I can, you know, date her, <laughs> which is a really bizarre and backwards way to get to that, but I've often found it helpful for actually, like, giving a shit about church.
2: Right, right. Well, there's, <laughs> Just be there's careful, different. though. Just be careful. <laughs> <laughs> well, there's
0: a bit of a chicken and egg thing there, too, though, because it, it's you could say that when you're fe- when you're feeling good about your faith, you're also feeling good about yourself, and then you consider yourself worth pursuing somebody, right? Mm-hmm. So, like, you might... Seek out relationships more if you're feeling like you're
2: in a good spot. Or maybe, maybe you're worth pursuing anyway. And <laughs> if people don't see that, then that's their loss. Which right. came first? Uh, the chicken see did or there? the ovary? <laughs> <laughs>
0: <laughs> Which came
1: first, Jesus or God? Dun, 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 dun. In the beginning, there was the word and the word was with God. Yes. And if Jesus is the word made flesh, then I just answered your question.
0: Well, fine. Boom. Getting
1: getting all scriptural on me. (laughs) Scienced. Oh, man. So, Jason, uh, what would you say is, like, the thing that you hope people get out of your book? What's, like, if you had to give it, like, a mission statement?
2: Yeah, well, I mean, I think that a lot of people that I have talked to um, feel as though they're out of step with the, the faith that they inherited from their parents and what they're seeing in their churches. And I think a lot of people, even if they want to identify on some level as Christian still, they kind of feel like, well, but I'm not like, I'm not like one of them or I don't think that, or I don't hate the gays enough or whatever. (laughs) And, so therefore, they kind of scrap the, the whole project because they they just don't fit the mold. And I think there's a growing, you know, number of voices, and I'm hoping to add mine to that number, who are challenging that idea and challenging some of the ways that we traditionally have thought and done things. You know, and so I mean, the title of Misfit Faith kind of sums it up. Like if you're feeling like you're not fitting in, so what? maybe that's okay. Maybe, maybe uh, you don't need to conform to every little thing that you've been taught or that's expected of you. Maybe you can still be a person of faith, be a spiritual person without um, necessarily marching to the beat of the drum that you're hearing in your own life. Maybe you can kind of step outside the norm and, and be a misfit and be okay with that, be okay with that status, you know? I mean, on some level, you could argue that Jesus was a misfit. I mean, they did kill him. So, you know, it wasn't as though he was running around just confirming everybody's ideas uh, of what God was like. If anything, he was saying things like, you've heard it's been said, but I say unto you, and pissing everybody off in the process. So maybe that's okay. And, you know, um, maybe you've been told that Christianity involves a way narrower thing set of things you have to be and think than is actually the case hmm. Hmm. there's
0: this uh this idea that i've been considering recently which is more related to politics but also i think applies a little bit here which is that like liberal and conservative more than being opinions are actually personality types and that if you actually like measure people's personality traits they fall very clearly into like you know you're you're a liberal because you're high in like openness and that's a pretty fixed personality trait or you're a conservative because you're really high in conscientiousness and that's a, a also a pretty fixed personality trait. Um so I think maybe the goal the the goal of society is meant to be that you it can be a society that has a really concrete rule-based structure that the people who need those things can inhabit them but that that rule-based structure has built into it ways that the people who want to play around with order and chaos and sort of live freely and on the, on the edge of, of ideas and what's possible can also do that, and sort of that neither sides actually have to convert the other to being them. And I think maybe that's what the goal of the church needs to be too, right? Is to, because there are people who are really comfortable in order and understanding things and having a, a system by which to live. And you can't just tell them, oh, throw away all your systems and live like like me out wondering if anything is true. <laughs> um, but they also can't do that with you. So I think maybe we need to find some sort of balance there.
1: Right. And I mean, every like prominent theologian at some point had that moment where they're like, well, wait a second. I don't totally think this is right. And had to like question stuff and figure stuff out. Right. And so if every person looks at the framework and the rules that are in front of them and sees it as an obstacle, as opposed to a thing that they need to work through, then nothing ever gets worked through and nobody makes any progress with anything.
2: Yeah, I think there's something to that, you know. Um, uh, I mean, in many ways, I think um, kind of fundamentalism versus um, comfort with messiness uh, is you know, I mean, because a lot of a-, a lot of atheists are fundamentalists. In many ways, a, a lot of atheists are just the secular versions of, uh, you know, um, Oral Roberts or Pat Buchanan or one of these one of these you know famous Christian fundamentalists. A lot of atheists um, would
0: get very mad at you for saying that.
2: <laughs> yeah, yeah, um, and because but it's because they it's their their you know they've got this closed system there's nothing they're they're absolutely certain that there is no God they're absolutely as certain as that there is no God as Pat Buchanan is that there is a God
0: mm-hmm.
2: um and in many ways I think if if there's a a healthy agnosticism in, in somebody then i I feel much more comfortable with them regardless of what their beliefs are um if you're if you're humble enough to not know things then I have a much easier time kind of hanging out and having a discussion with you than if you are absolutely certain that you're right, whatever you think you're right about, you know? Mm. So it's in many ways, I think you're right. It's not, it's not always the beliefs themselves, but it's the posture that you hold and and it's the way you hold those beliefs that determines the kind of person you are. Um, and and so that going back to the very, one of the first questions you asked me about what, what was the bigger shift, Protestant to Catholic or you know, kind of being, being certain about everything to being uncertain. Um, in many ways, it's that second shift that is the, is the big one. And to me, it's like, I, I, I have a much easier time hanging out or dialoguing or being a friend with, um, somebody who doesn't know what they think <laughs> than someone who's absolutely certain, even if they are certain about things I agree with, I'm, it still rubs me wrong.
1: <laughs> yeah. Well, I mean, I think that that makes a lot of sense like it it's good and i think productive to be able to question stuff and to be able to like have an open and you know humble conversation about it with people yeah mhm
0: cool. and and at the same time like for the i think it's really important for the people who do have to exist within rule systems that then that rule system has to have something in it that safeguards that so like a good a a good system of morals that's really rule based will also include things like you know individual rights and personal liberty and the idea that you can't impose this whole system on everybody else because um, I think that's that's the danger on it's, it's a danger on either side like like sort of systems versus chaos and authoritarianism versus f- like freedom of thought are kind of two different axes, and i think i'm I'm skeptical of anyone who says that either of either of sort of the, the first axis is right because it puts them up on sort of the authoritarian part where they're trying to impose it <laughs> on everyone else.
2: Yeah, um, and there's a, you know, I, I talk in the book a little bit about f- just freedom and liberty, you know, under grace as opposed to kind of servile bondage under law. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, even Paul says, where the spirit of the Lord is, there is liberty. And there's a sense in which... Um, you know, there's a sense in which, t- to whatever degree you know, we are free, free from whatever it might be that oppresses us, whether it's guilt or shame or law or whatever, um, to me that that is where God is and that is where health is as opposed to fear and feeling trapped and condemned and then running around condemning everyone else because, after all, God's a judge. And so the more godly we are, the more judgmental we are because that's what God's job is. Um, it's just, to me, it, I've, I feel like I've been there, done that, you know?
1: Yeah. I like, I like what you're, what you're, what you're saying about like, you know, church needs to be a place where misfits can go and like be. Cause I think if there's, if there's one thing that sort of, I have gotten out of a lot of the media that I've grown up with, it's that like misfits are cool and they get things done. Mm -hmm. Yeah, (laughs) like like Glee taught me that, you know, Glee taught me that it's (laughs) totally fine to be, you know, gay or in a wheelchair or, you know, uh, I'm blanking on any other Glee characters right now. But, you know, (laughs) it, it taught me that the misfits have a place in the world and that, you know, you can you can actually kind of be part of something bigger than yourself, even if not everyone there makes the most sense to you
2: yeah have you seen um the film the perks of being a wallflower not yet man you, <laughs> I mean, you should behind. see it it's it's uh i mean it just came out a few years ago but it's it's so great and it kind of focuses on this um little group of friends one of them's emma watson you know from mm. the harry potter movies and um, a couple other actors you may have seen before um but it's just this kind of close-knit group of misfit friends you know there's a scene where the phone rings and and um, Emma Watson picks it up and says uh, welcome to the island of misfit toys um, that's you know it's that it's just a beautiful picture of of what you just got through saying that there's a place not just a place um, but you know there there is um, absolutely room for people who may not fit a mold and um, I, I think the Kind of the smaller the world gets because of the internet and other ways of being aware of of other cultures. Um, there's it, it's a very decentering kind of thing, you know. The the internet especially, it calls into question this idea that um, such and such is normal, and if you are something else, then you're abnormal. You know, so if you're not blond-haired, blue-eyed, and white, and straight, and and male. Then you're kind of weird. <laughs> it's like when you go to the grocery store and there's a there's an aisle for ethnic food, right? Right. It's like, oh, oh, I see. So um, Thai peanut sauce and salsa and and um, you know hot sauce. Sometimes
1: you find like Italian coffee in there too, which blows me away. Well,
2: yeah, but but we're not ethnic. I, I have no ethnicity because I'm Amer- I'm American and I'm white. Right. But um, oh, but you're oh he's an ethnic. He's an ethnic <laughs> right, guy. Yeah. Because he's because he's the norm is me and you're different and so you're ethnic Mm -hmm. um but it's you know it's i i think we need to get away from that idea you know it's like Mm -hmm. it's like with speech you know we think about you know so and so has an accent well of course he has an accent everyone has an accent i have an accent you guys i can hear your canadian accent yeah and we can hear Um, your weird west coast accent yeah yeah (laughs) um but it's like you know we we think that like oh if somebody's learning english um like, let's say a German guy learns English, um, but he's really good at it because he doesn't have an accent. But it's like, well, but you know, you're assuming that there's something as accentless speech, which is very much like thinking there's a view from nowhere, right. or that there's a, a norm, a normal kind of thing that everybody, if they fall outside of that, is abnormal. And I think we need to get, we need to decenter that mm. and and get away from that for our own good, and as well as for the sake of other people.
0: Totally. One thing about accents is that like that's actually a it's a very f- fairly surface level feature. So I grew up in Quebec and I i have vi- I have a, a, an English accent when I speak French, but like a difficult one to hear if you're actually an English speaker. But I'm much less confident than a lot of people who came from other systems and they speak with this like egregious English accent that's almost laughable, but they can <coughs> actually communicate and actually do well. So I think it's it's also kind of a question of looking at, you know, what are you looking at? Are you looking at the the important things or are you looking at these surface features that enable you to dismiss somebody?
1: Right. Yeah. That's it. Like I always joke that my French is way better on paper than it is out loud because I did AP French. I studied in, you know, bilingual French programs in English schools in Montreal for all of high school. My French, you know, I have all of the french skills necessary but when it comes out of my mouth everyone thinks i'm an anglophone well you know? but but like your,
0: your french is actually like sp- your spoken french is better than mine like you're more comfortable in french than i am sure even though you have a stronger like anglophone accent than i do
1: but i think i'm also just more comfortable than you um uh, that's questionable i live with you <laughs> uh, no I, I mean in terms of like speaking in front of people <laughs> that's fair <laughs> Um, I'm way more paranoid than you, but I'm much more socially comfortable, (laughs) which is a weird balance. Yep. Yep. Cool. Well, Jason, we don't want to hold you for too long. We've hit the, uh, the hour mark. So do you have any, uh, any final thoughts for, uh, for listeners or listeners of our podcast? Boy, words are hard. Uh, Well,
2: um, I mean, I just, just, uh, um, encourage them to buy the book. Um, you can find it, um, anywhere that books are sold online, you know, Amazon, Barnes and Noble, um, you can actually find it on walmart.com too, but I would dissuade anybody <laughs> from shopping at Walmart. Um, but yeah, it's called Misfit Faith Confessions of a Drunk Ex-Pastor. Um, you can also find it, it's on my podcast website. So my podcast is Drunk Ex-Pastors. And if you go to drunkexpastors.com book, you can find links to buy the book there. Um, and you can also find me, I have an author page on Facebook under Jason J. Stellman, and um, JasonStelman. dot com as well. If you want to book me to speak, or I do mentoring and spiritual kind of life coaching and that kind of thing as well. So if anybody's interested in that, if you go to my website, um, you can find all the information really easily there. Um, but yeah, I mean, the book's coming out on the seventh of March, which as of right now is like a few days away. So yeah. and we're, we're gonna I'm looking this, forward to uh, it.
1: This episode will come out on the seventh, so the book is out today. Oh, nice. oh it's <laughs> Out snap. today. Go buy it, everybody. <laughs> All right. We'll put an Amazon <laughs> link in the description of this episode. Yeah. Oh, please do. Thank you. And your your podcast is it's you
0: and another former pastor who is now agnostic. Is that correct?
2: Yeah, yeah. We've been best friends since high school, cool. and um, cool. he and I sit down. We've been long before we had a podcast. We'd sit down and drink and talk um, for years. We've been doing that. And we just decided to record it, and so like what you hear is really just an an un, kind of edited um, discussion between two guys who've known each other for most of their lives, talking about politics, religion, culture, whatever, um, while while we drink um, whiskey. So it's uh, it's basically drunk expats. It's what it is. Right. We're not drunk. We're not drunk. though. we're not drunk. No. Very that's cool. that's
1: funny that's very similar to how our show got started we were like you know yeah, what? the three yeah. of us always have good conversations we should record this
2: <laughs> totally yeah. Sweet. Well, all thanks
1: right. so much for joining us. And, uh, guys, yeah, remember my to uh to click on all the links in the description. Check out Jason's podcast, Confessions, or sorry, uh, <laughs> The Drunk Ex Pastors. I glanced at the book and read the subtitle of the book. And I was like, Confessions of a Drunk Ex Pastor. Uh, make sure that it's Drunk Ex Pastors. His co host gets sad when people remember, when people forget <laughs> that there's two of them. Uh, yeah. Follow the show on Twitter at Down Talking. You can follow us individually at Tom and I at Acapella Science. Jason, you're on Twitter.
2: Jason J. Stillman. Perfect.
1: And uh, yeah, buy the book, Misfit Faith, available now. Yeah. Jason,
2: thanks for coming. Hey, my pleasure, guys. Anytime.
1: Yeah, no worries. Tune in next week when we interview a live God.